Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we speak with the writer and consultant Venkatesh Rao. He's also the founder of the influential long-form blogging site Ribbon Farm, which has become an important haven for mapping emergent social phenomenon and expanding our lexicon for thinking and speaking about the world. Venkatesh kindly gave us a little bit of his time earlier this month to help us make sense of what future the corona crisis is ushering in. We talk memetics and virality, institutions and intuition, log-level thinking, BIOS-level politics, and how to navigate reality when everything seems to be going I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-hosts Carly Busta and Daniel Keller. Let's get into it. Today we are speaking with the writer and consultant Venkatesh Rao, the founder of Ribbon Farm, which is a blog he began in 2007 that has since become a major touchstone for a generation of younger thinkers interested in mapping the systems that organize the world. The author of several books, including most recently Crash Early, Crash Often from 2017, he is also a master coiner of phrases, premium mediocre, domestic cozy, and our recent favorite in the time of COVID, log level all come from Venkatesh's realm. His writing has been published broadly in publications such as The Atlantic, Eon, and Forbes, and he has previously served as a consultant for A16Z, among others in the tech idea space. At present, Venkatesh is a fellow at the Begrun Institute, which in broad strokes is dedicated to examining how humanity is changing. Um, does that check out more or less? That's correct. Okay. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a very exciting time to be speaking with you because we find ourselves in April 2020 amid this epistemological global shift. And it's not just that there is context collapse, that there's been a literal suspension as the spread of a small particle has ratified the death of an old world order, making the context, in fact, mm-hmm quite clear. Uh, what's not clear, and one of the reasons why we're so glad to be speaking with you, is uh, what model should now fill this void. Um, as you've recently written about our current conditions in your weekly newsletter, Art of the Gig, you guys can subscribe to it. Uh, and so we thought maybe as a way of starting, we could ask you for a working definition, uh, you know, like a quick summation of, you know, like the state of the world right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, state of the world. Ooh, so actually I've been writing about that stuff um, on the art of gig, which is my newsletter for independent consultants, but I've been writing also on my other newsletter, which is Breaking Smart. That's kind of a more broad audience thing. And uh, recently I wrote an essay on Breaking Smart titled Life Go Burr. <laughs> so this of course is a reference to the money printer Go Burr meme. And I think um, there's a reason that meme has captured the imagination. I think it's the best meme since uh, Harambe. And the reason is completely nails the most essential piece of the zeitgeist, which is just go burr quality, which is, uh, I think of that as an allegory for exponential dynamics. Uh-huh. And that's the, the distinction between normal times and pandemic times is what I think of as the distinction between So I'm going to use a computing metaphor here between polynomial times and exponential times. So in computer science, um, polynomial is a geek code for a problem that's roughly tractable. You can compute with polynomial time algorithms, whereas an exponential running time algorithm, you might be able to describe it, but it's not tractable to run on regular computers. And I think that's a good metaphor for everything that's breaking down, like any aspect of life you look at, there's a normal condition where we kind of know how to run it, what the algorithms are and how to govern with those algorithms. And then there is this situation where things are just exponentially doubling. And that's the part that interests me. So the state of the world is life go burr. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I remember you wrote a lot of like really interesting takes about the NPC meme. And I was just wondering if you think, what is the go burr meme? do to NPCs or how does it interface? So 
as people who've seen the meme know, the characters in the Gober meme are actually Wojak, the character in the NPC meme, right? And the subtle point which you wouldn't get if you haven't been tracking uh, meme conversations is both those characters are Wojak, one wearing like some sort of um, ANCAP costume and the other um, looking slightly different, but both are the same. That's the fun thing. And both are non-playing characters. So the question is, what's the difference between them? And they're both in denial about different things. So both are inhabiting a false consciousness. But the one on the left, the one who's sort of protesting that, oh, you can't just abandon traditional models and just do random shit. That NPC is living in a false consciousness of polynomial time, polynomial conditions, and is not willing to give up, say, traditional ways of governing the economy and monetary policy or whatever. And the one on the right, it has this nihilistic money printer go burr um, attitude. And that's a different kind of false consciousness, which is this sense that everything has collapsed forever and permanently and things will never go back to normal. And it's got this sort of nihilistic, this is permanent. And both are wrong because normalcy will return and exponential times can't continue forever. That is true, but it's also true that right now normalcy has been completely broken down. And for now, we are in exponential times where, you know, things double every week in the mindset. So both have a false consciousness. And the interesting thing is neither is even remotely in control of the situation. Uh-huh. It's just the one on the left is more uh-huh. in denial than the one on the right. So in that sense, while both are non-playable characters and non-playing characters, they're sort of swept up by events rather than having any agency. Um, the one that's laughing and saying money printer go burr is less in denial, but still has no agency. So that's the way I think about how the meme plays with the non-playable character meme. But the interesting thing to contrast it with is um, the Virgin versus uh, Chad meme. Are you guys familiar with that one? Yeah, so so that's a very similar and a good comparison point because that presents a picture of one actually having more agency than the other, right? So the Chad in that meme is presented as having a lot more agency. And this, I think, is uh, the, the way to summarize the Go Burr meme is we are all NPCs now. I mean, in the face of uh, the virus <laughs> being in control, we are all NPCs. That's uh, basically what the uh, meme communicates to us, I think. You know, yes. but there, there was a really terrifying line from a Life Go Burr. Uh, he said, reality eventually violates every model, undermining any fictive agency that depends on people believing in that model. Um, and I believe you also talked about default, which as a word carries two meanings right now that are particularly mm-hmm. relevant. Um, but I mean, it got me thinking about how much uh, we, uh, how much of society actually operates just from everyone believing in, in certain models. And I mean, do you have an idea of the human default? Uh, I mean, are we at risk of it just purely going, I mean, what would that be? Just outright warlords, violence, uh, tribalism? Um, <laughs> would it be the opposite? Would it be like the lack of work? And just, I mean, right now in Berlin, it's very idyllic. Merkel's given everybody $5,000. It's a crazy situation where uh-huh. it's like a total non-work state, right? Which is a different kind of nihilism. I think one of the things we're learning right now is that perhaps the biggest illusion of all is the illusion that preppers had. So the idea that you can stockpile stuff and guns and ammo and toilet paper, and that actually gives you agency in a world like this, (laughs) that's the most um, ridiculous piece of this because the large-scale social realities we rely on are much, much bigger than any modest amount of agency you might be able to carve out and typically inspired by some bullshit Hollywood um, movie plot premise. And that's not how the world works. When you think of fictive agency, just because agency is based on a fiction doesn't mean it's not actually effective. So an example of that is money. Money is like the most important example of like a social reality that is nevertheless very real, even though it's uh, fictive, right? And under normal times, money behaves in certain ways. We use it to run the economy. And Bitcoin behaves a certain way and we use it to run other marginal pieces of the economy. And both are based on particular fictions about, you know, the nature of money and wealth and economics. Bitcoin has been a big part of the prepper mindset for the last decade. And right now, for the first time, they're realizing with a shock that Bitcoin can end up correlated to 
core financial markets, it's not like a true hedge. And that's been one of the, I don't know, more schadenfreude fun things for me to watch, which is <laughs> uh, welcome back to mainstream finance Bitcoiners. <laughs> like I hold some crypto too, but I'm not attached to it in that particular way of, oh, when shit hits the fan, then the prescient visionaries amongst us who bought Bitcoin will go off and form this Anne Randian, you know, going galt uh, uh, society where we will survive and the rest of you idiots will fail and die <laughs> and, you know, be killed by zombies or whatever. That's not how it's working out. It turns out Bitcoin is as entangled with mainstream finance as anything else. Like prepping is not going to do anything other than buy you few weeks right. of time. After that, you're back in the same situation with everybody else. And it's a matter of how well you use the few weeks of time you bought, right? Right now, the driving forcing function of the world is a virus, maybe in a year, maybe in two years, that will no longer be the case. But for now, we have to build our realities on that very basic log level, since you guys want to talk about that, to the log level reality of there is a virus spreading around the world. And every false consciousness you build had better be based on that foundation. Uh, log level, if you would just want to say in a line what log level is for anyone who uh, is not already familiar. So log level is a phrase I started using sometime uh, about a year ago, and it popped out of uh, the models I was building for thinking about time. So that's my current big project, thinking about multi-temporality. The idea that each of us is inhabiting a timeline of its own subjective qualities. A big piece of that is sort of a seven-layer stack of thinking about time, and the log level is the lowest level of that seven-layer stack. And the simplest way I can explain the log level is your subjective, consequential version of a clock signal. So for a century, we were all kind of driven by the mechanical clock, tick-tock, Greenwich Mean Time, and we were all coordinated by clocks as the basis of industrial economics, right? And at some point, about 20, 30 years ago, clocks became more and more important to computers and robots, but less and less important to humans. And most of us stopped wearing wristwatches. Today, when we look at the time, most often we are actually just looking at our phone screen. And I started thinking about, all right, if the wristwatch or the clock is no longer the lowest level event stream that's shaping your temporal consciousness, what is it? And that's how I started thinking about the log level as a more general sense of what's the lowest object level stream of events that's creating your sense of time on an ongoing basis, right? So it could be Twitter. So Twitter is a good example for people like me who are very online. My sense of daily time is basically the tick-tock, tick-tock of like tweets flowing by on my feed. So that's log level. And right now for all of us around the world, one of the basic log level signals is the counts of cases in different geographies. So yeah. here in LA, yeah, it's whatever 144 cases were positive yesterday in Berlin, it's something else. So we have these virus time zones, each of which is driven by the case count, the fatality count, the ICU count, right? So those are our clocks now, that's log level. The image that always comes to my mind, though, when you say log level is still ants crawling on a physical log in the forest, oh. <laughs> but <laughs> separately. That's actually, if I remember correctly, the origin of the phrase log, as in log books or web logs or anything, that actually comes from a physical log. Like, uh, really? it's a nautical idea where they used to throw a log oh, out in the water sure, with a rope uh, trailing behind it, knots on the rope at... Uh, I may be getting this wrong. I looked it up a long time ago. But that, that's how the written logs come from, how you sort of use that kind of log to measure knots in sailing. But I, I could be wrong. Yeah, but, no, that, yeah. that sounds about right. Yeah. The physical wooden logs are a good image to have in mind. <laughs> um, what, do you, what are the chances that, like, this is not actually, we're not in a state of revelation. There's going to be a return to normalcy and, and nothing has changed because I really feel like increasingly there's a chance of that, that we reached this sort of singularity where all the possibilities were exploded. And since then, there's been like a kind of a cooling off period. It definitely correlates with a log level of understanding the curve. I mean, also a couple of weeks ago was on TradingView, they started having the COVID death stats that you can literally chart with mm -hmm. them as, a, as an indicator. And I sort of just wonder, like, is it possible that we've already normalized all of this and it's just <laughs> actually everything is going to go back to normal? No, uh, I don't think so. We are definitely normal, not in normal conditions anymore, but this is definitely not the apocalypse either. That much is clear. I mean, you look at accounts of the Spanish flu in 1918, you look at uh, more localized accounts of SARS and MERS um, 10, 15 years ago, 
There is no living memory of a global pandemic of this sort. So the last one was a century ago, but it's clear that humanity has survived several of these things uh, over the centuries. And each time, some things changed permanently, some things kind of went back to normal. You know, one of the things that marks the apocalyptic imagination is they like zero one outcomes, like everything is the same or everything is different or nothing will change or everything will change. And that's never, ever true, right? Even for the cynics amongst us who think, for example, that the current bank bailouts, all the money printer, fiscal stuff, that's a sign of nothing being different. But that's not true. Economic interventions being tried right now in 2020, they have actually learned from the lessons of 2008 and are doing something slightly differently. 2008, the interventions were different from 1929, 1933. So it's sometimes hard to see institutional human scale learning around really, really large problems because it happens so slowly. So much of it is so technical and so much of it is learned by just a few key people, right? Like sanitation. The last time this happened, Spanish flu, we didn't have antibiotics. What was then called the iron lung had not yet been invented. Both were 1928. This time around, the entire pandemic effort is focused around antibiotics are a big part, ventilators are a big part, neither existed in Spanish flu. And, but some of the things did exist in Spanish flu. You go back and read, you see people were obsessed with masks. People were shaming each other for not wearing masks. And back in 1918, people had already discovered that mode of transmission, whereas during the Black Death, People didn't understand how diseases were transmitted and they believed in the miasma theory of uh, disease spread, right? So you can sort of, if you have the right kind of historical consciousness, you can kind of track the evolution of what changed, what did not change, what small things were learned, what new institutions were built, what uh, failed. When we think of uh, institutions, we think of like banks and corporations, but any human norm-based sort of structured interaction pattern is actually an institution. And I was fascinated by how about 13, 14 years ago, suddenly everybody around the world learned what's now called the vampire sneeze. Are you guys uh, familiar with the term? Like sneezing into your elbow. That's because that looks like you're moving your cloak (laughs) over your uh, shoulder, right? (laughs) But sneezing into your elbow, as best as I can discover, I haven't fully dug out the backstory, but it was invented, I think, by a public health agency in Sweden or somewhere. And it was recommended as prophylactic sneezing. And then it spread to other public health agencies. And now, of course, when I walk around and see people sneezing, maybe one in three people actually knows how to do the vampire sneeze. And that, to me, is an example of an institution that represents public health learning that happened about 10 years ago. So there's going to be a lot of such things that we learned right now. Like the world has now suddenly learned how to wash hands correctly. And that's a big deal. (laughs) I realized three weeks ago that I was not washing my hands correctly. I think most of us did at that time. (laughs) What's the difference between a meme and an institution then? Because it sounds like there's a gray zone. Hmm. That's an interesting question. I haven't actually ever thought about that. So both share one feature, which is they're a stable pattern of something. I think the difference is an institution is a stable pattern of behavior, whereas a meme is a stable pattern of sort of uh, knowledge representation or symbolizing. So a meme Mm. can help an institution spread and an institution can help a meme spread, but one is an epistemic atom and the other is sort of a behavioral atom. Also, I think memes depend on their exploitability, you know, because I don't see anyone vampire farting (laughs) Or, you know, it it, it doesn't lend itself to morphing to uh, different but similar uses. (laughs) I I wouldn't be too sure about that. I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. But but the two do interact in interesting ways. Like one of the ways in the United States people are taught to wash their hands correctly is to sing happy birthday twice. And happy birthday is one of the classic examples of memes. Like Richard Dawkins, I think. Yeah. Uh, mentioned it in his early book. But but it's a fairly old tune. It's like more than 100 years old. But it's an example of a tune that's got real strong memetic power, right? Combined with the meme we want to spread of washing your hands for at least 20 seconds, and it works, right? So memes plus uh, institutions work together. Is there also like a DNA, RNA kind of metaphor that works there where institutions are trying, like (laughs) self-editing, whereas memes are yeah trying to be able to be as mutatable as possible? And there's some sort of check and balance there. Mm. I would be careful with using agency language for memes uh, because they are these dumb, non-sentient 
things that just have the you know Darwinian variation and natural selection things. So there's there's no meaningful way to talk about what memes want or what genes want. So it's a question of how much variation is possible and how much agency over the evolution do institutions have. So to answer your question, I think both sort of more codified formal institutional memes and the in the wild variety that sort of replicate and mutate arbitrarily, they both are fundamentally Darwinian in their nature. The difference is that in one case, there are powerful non-evolutionary forces trying to control it. So think of it as um, breeding farm animals versus natural evolution in the wild. So uh, when you talk about like sheep or cattle or breeds of chicken, being consciously evolved or dog breeds being constantly evolved by breeders, that's still Darwinian evolution, but with a very powerful entity controlling the process. Whereas if you're talking mosquitoes or viruses in the wild, they're evolving in a much more uncontrolled way. So it's a question of the amount of control that can be exercised by what you might call an intelligent design entity in the picture, in this case, humans. I, I do. I do also want to like come back later again, sort of the contemporary, but um, to zoom out a little bit as we're speaking about memetics. I know a lot of people also had the same question in our Discord community. One of the major contributions you've made to the discourse is on the molecular level, your use of single words, your use of terms or metaphors, and I, mm-hmm. I wonder how the new terms that you put out there can be used as levers to control reality. H- how do you think about the language that you put out there and its power in shaping how we? perceive reality? I think this is probably the most important question for uh, writers in particular to understand in modern times. And when you have an idea, you have a couple of different choices. Choice number one is you can look for sort of a community of authority around that set of ideas. So for example, if you come up with a physics insight, you can go and look at how physicists talk about it, learn their language, learn their modes of like talking to each other, and sort of do your best to harmonize what you're saying with their ways of talking. That's basically an overture to membership in a community of discourse. That's option one. Option number two is you become this sort of autodidact ideologue who's creating their own mental thought palace with their own weird language around everything. And there's a lot of people who do that. They're very, very hard to penetrate or understand. It's almost like entering a black hole. You're either in the discourse space or you're not. And typically, this is not communities that have evolved over hundreds of years like physicists, but this is individual autodidacts. And often the internet produces a lot of these. Like uh, uh, the alt-right was sparked by, you know, Mencius Moldbug, who has his own little thought sphere that people can enter and it takes a lot of effort to access and understand what he's talking about. But that's the sort of thing where you come up with this whole vocabulary. So that's option number two. I don't like either option. I don't like accepting the authority of an institution that already exists, especially one whose premises I might disagree with. So I don't want to like uh, bend a knee and offer my thoughts as a sort of offering to that community by adapting what I'm saying to their language, because that might distort what I'm saying too much. I also do not want to go around creating like a hedgehoggy palace out of my own thoughts and force people to learn an entire new Esperanto. That's how I think of these autodidactic <laughs> thought spaces. Uh, this is not being me being humble. This is me calibrating right. So the third option then becomes, I look around for things that already are kind of close to what I'm doing. And then I'm rude about sort of abusing that language for my own purposes. Uh, Humpty Dumpty says this in Alice in Wonderland, which is a word is exactly what I, a word means what I choose it to mean. And I don't care what it already means. So I have a Humpty Dumpty (laughs) approach to language. So that's sort of the backdrop. So I choose this abuse language approach to pushing my ideas out. It matters who controls the vocabulary. That's the key thing to control. So vocabularies are institutions. So more than saying, hey, I want the future to be libertarian or socialist or whatever big ideology you want to push, it's important to actually take control over the minting of the words that will be used to talk. So anybody who's successfully installs a meme in the next 18 months through the pandemic, they are going to come out on top as big winners. So Whether the future is like, you know, social democrat or libertarian or whatever the hell, none of us will ever forget the term flattening the curve. That's been installed into the discourse as a key element of our vocabulary of how we think about this stuff, right? So people who want to be sociopathic about this and use sort of abusive memetic engineering to own the future, they should focus on coining terms, like coin terms that um, get a lot of appreciation in equity. Like, you know, Bitcoin, like you're almost... 
uh, doing sort of proof of mimetic work and coining bitcoins to be used in the future, verbal bitcoins. I think that's also interesting because flattening the curve is, you know, explicitly like calling for polynomial times to come back from exponential times. It's like, let's stop the exponential times. To that end, I was wondering, like, you tweeted something that I think was in the fall about the last three kinds of people who are still woke. And one was psychopaths, maybe you mean sociopaths, that are trying to take control of or harvest dying blue institutions. Then you have idiots executing broken NPC robot scripts. And then third, you have après nous le déluge types who feel like they're the last line of defense against Hobbesian bloodshed, which I thought was great. Can that survive in exponential time? Because it really seems like woke to me is a polynomial time reaction. And what, is, what does woke look like now? Has it changed since you wrote that? So that's, uh, that's an interesting question. And I still stand by that three-way partitioning and I still stand by classifying myself in the last third of it. But the delusion I'm talking about is not exponential times in the sense of like, you know, pandemic stressors on societal organization. The deluge is more a memetic pandemic of like people having this fatalistic reactionary mindset of, oh, just because work has gotten intellectually bankrupt and politically compromised by sociopaths trying to control institutions, the underlying values are therefore bankrupt and meaningless and using your strength to try and protect the weak are sort of bankrupt ideas. So that's the line I think that's still worth defending, where it's like, No, society is not actually Darwinian. We edit evolution very significantly and have been doing it for several thousands of years. And that's pretty much the source of everything we value. And most of us, even the ones who pretend that they would do very well as hunter-gatherers, hunting meat and surviving, they wouldn't survive. Like all of us are descendants (laughs) of people who chose the other path. The people who chose that path of like, you know, hunter-gatherers, they were the ones who got out-evolved at a systemic level by people who decided, hey, we are going to plant grain, even if that means we are like six inches shorter than Paleolithic hunters, even if it means we accept the diseases of civilized settled life, even if it means crowding in dense habitations. The group that chose that is the one that out-evolved the ones that um, the noble savage people fetishize. So that's uh, sort of a baseline assumption I want to make. But the other piece of it is, all right, when you extrapolate to modern times, the line that's worth defending around woke is the farther away we get from natural evolutionary forces, the more our survival as a species starts to depend on really weird distributions of institutional knowledge in us as a species. Like right now, our collective survival does not depend at an individual level on whether you do deadlifts, whether you eat paleo. It does not depend on any of those things. It depends on a few people in institutions who spent decades studying virology, um, vaccine creation, construction of like, you know, non-woven fabric masks. These are like extremely, extremely far up the technological stack of knowledge. And the people who know how to do the shit that's going to save us all are people with, you know, PhDs and like boring bureaucratic types uh, sitting in the tops of institutions. There was this great N plus one article in 2014 called bureaucratic heroism. These are, you might like, complain about fake bureaucracies and fake expertise all you like. But the fact remains that these bureaucratic heroes are the only ones who know how to create vaccines and things. And the people who think they're going back to hunter-gatherer times, they are kind of boring in a very particularly ignorant way where the things they fetishize in their Bronze Age mindset, powerlifting, whatever the (laughs) hell they fetishize, that's useless knowledge at this point. And the last third of wokeism that I want to defend is I don't want that type of idiocy to swamp all this institutional knowledge that we've built up across several thousands of years. I don't want the deadlifting, keto dieting, hunter-gatherer, LARPing idiots to be the reason we lose several hundred years of knowledge about how to make vaccines and you know, <laughs> things like that. And uh, to bring it back to the question you were asking about uh, what's the role of woke in modern times. Uh, yes, you're right that woke is, I think, an artifact of polynomial times because algorithms are polynomial. Tractable algorithms are polynomial. Bureaucracies are human-powered computers that run polynomial time algorithms. The people who staff these bureaucracies 
Generally, they're sincere, well-intentioned, professional, hardworking people, but they're not genius scientists who will be the ones discovering vaccines or whatever. They tend to be middle-of-the-road mediocre intelligences, and they run these polynomial algorithms, and they need the geniuses to come up with the vaccines. Then they institutionally push out those vaccines. That's how our system works, right? This is the way humanity has solved complex problems for several hundred years now, right? And the first kind of work, the sociopath type that wants to take control of such institutional knowledge for their own personal gain, they are toxic. They are to be resisted. Like you have these people who take over human resources departments and corporations, and they want to like subvert all the institutional knowledge of say a company that's building complex medical equipment. And they want to make that entire company's attention focus entirely on, I don't know, representation and minutiae of uh, sexual harassment norms. And that institution will forget how to build medical equipment. And you don't want that. So you want to shut that shit down. Uh, The second kind is um, clueless robot types, and they were the staffing armies of like social media wars, people who like everything Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweets. That group of people, they're sort of endemic in humanity. They are a third of humanity. They're there whether you like it or not. You put them in the right institutional context, they will do the right thing. Like you teach them good algorithms, they will be NPCs running good algorithms and doing good things. You teach them bad algorithms, they will be NPCs running bad algorithms and doing bad things. So they are up for grabs. So if bad sociopaths grab them and use them for their purposes, they're going to do bad. If good people teach them how to administer vaccines, they'll do good. So I think of them as almost pawns in the game who are going to be co-opted one way or the other. And there's no way around this because they're part of the solution of how we solve problems. So that brings us to the third group that's hopefully more consciously engaged on the meaning of what we're doing. Like, why is it worthwhile for the strong to defend the weak? I want to make that the line in the sand. Like, that's a fundamental value that I think divides. You you can make one of two commitments. It's the job of the strong to rule the weak for their own purposes, or it's the job of the strong to try and protect the weak with whatever surpluses they have. There is still like a strong and principled ideological stance to be built on the foundation of It's actually meaningful for people with strength and power to do their best to protect and defend and enable and empower people who don't have it because in this advanced civilizational condition we are in, power and strength do not equate to stupid-ass LARPing identity factors like how much you can deadlift. It depends on how you fit into this, what I've been calling the global social computer in the cloud. It's this really complex system that none of us understand, but that somehow sustains life at a very advanced quality of life for all of us. Like I write, I blog, I have certain expertise in engineering that I no longer use, but somehow I'm a piece in this big puzzle of, you know, seven and a half billion people that somehow figures out how to solve pandemics. And I don't know how this entire machine works, but one thing I do know is that It's not some stupid identity elements I fetishize. It's much more complex. So it's almost like a precautionary principle of, I don't know how this wonderful system that sort of sustains us all works. I know I play a part in it. I don't know how I play a part in it. Since I don't know how I'm being part of the solution rather than part of the problem, it behooves me to sort of protect as many pieces of the overall thing as I can. And the sort of nutritionally deprived um, impoverished third world kid in some slum right now is going to be somehow through like butterfly flapping their wings kind of way is going to be the key to the solution to the next pandemic that arrives in 15, 20 years, right? Who the hell knows? We don't know how this complex system works. So my sort of precautionary approach to this is in general, use strength and power in a way that sort of brings the most people along for the ride keeps as much variety in the human experience as possible, alive and sustainable. So it's, it's sort of a, and a very conservative stance in certain ways where I don't want to bet too much on what I think is the meaning of fitness and adaptation and what actually helps us survive in today. Anyway, that's my long rant on why I <laughs> very good. Yeah. I mean, this reminds me of some, uh, a phrase I've been using in our conversations, which I don't know if it's quite right in terms of its computer metaphor, but I, I talk about it as like BIOS level thinking, which is basically like the basic what's right and fair doesn't have to have any extra stacks of or layers of explanation or abstraction. It's Works almost, in all computers regardless. Right. It's actually a common sense of, of what's fair to people. And it's often owned by conservatives. And I was thinking right now, you know, everyone's kind of shocked of the socialism of some of the responses to the pandemic 
by Trump giving people free money or actually asking for universal health care. You know, before bios level thinking would be like, well, not everyone should get free health care. Like my tax dollars paying for someone else. But now because the virus is not their fault, it makes sense on this bios level thinking. And I'm wondering, especially with you making up terms and, and I mean, you just communicated a great defense of woke that would work to someone also on a bios level of thinking. I wonder to this mass market type of person, I mean, what are ways you could effectively communicate more compassionate policy to people who are still thinking on the BIOS level when it comes to understanding the world? What's a BIOS level version of democracy post-COVID like, or like a fair or governance system? what's a BIOS system, level or? version of universal healthcare right. just to do a simple one that's obviously yeah, compassionate? Uh, uh, so you, the way you're using BIOS level is uh, kind of related to how I use log level. So I would say BIOS level is sort of the algorithmic counterpart to log level as the set of events the stream of events it creates is what I would call the log levels. But yeah, to go back to your point of times are normal and normal day-to-day patterns of life are not being disrupted. It's very easy to take political positions and stances based on sort of abstract affiliational concerns. So most people pick ideologies based on, all right, here's my pattern of life. I kind of am lazy and I don't want to make any changes. And here are a bunch of people who kind of think like me. So I'm going to basically say a plus one to everything this group of people (laughs) thinks. That's the level at which people pick ideology. Mm. It's not considered evaluation of positions. It's not considered philosophical analysis. It's like, literally, this is my lifestyle and this is the minimum energy way of perpetuating it. And these are the set of people who are saying things that sound like it would preserve this lifestyle. Therefore, I will just sign on to everything they say. So <laughs> since that's the default, I don't take people's ideological positions very seriously, to be honest. Like when somebody declares I'm a libertarian or I'm a conservative, or I'm a um, you know, reactionary or I'm a liberal, I basically completely ignore that at normal times. So it's more about mimesis no- than actual belief, you think? Yeah, because it's not put to the test. It, there's no skin in the game. It's never actually been tested around necessary changes. So that's what's happening now, right? When you know that the transformation of your life at the very lowest level is inevitable, you can blame the Chinese all you like, you can blame anybody you like. It doesn't alter the fact that the virus does not respect, you know, in the US, red and blue state boundaries. Look on Twitter, you'll see anecdote after anecdote of people changing their minds on not ideology, not high level philosophy of politics, but at the level of policies, like, you know, whether wearing a mask or social distancing, they are very practical behavioral uh, imperatives, right? And you can spin them any way you like, like, Wearing a mask could be a conservative policy. It could be a liberal policy. Totally depends on the narrative you construct on top of that very low-level behavior. And what's happening all around is suddenly low-level policy recommendations that used to be coded as liberal or libertarian or socialist suddenly change and get coded conservative. Like UBI, for example. Now, suddenly that it's being backed by Trump and a bunch of conservatives in the US, suddenly ideas like UBI have acquired a very conservative narrative to them. They already did. Yeah, they already did that. Uh, My colleague here at Burgru and uh, Niels Gilman, he came up with this term avocado politics. And this is about climate change. If you can't unpack that, it's green on the outside, brown on the inside, as in brown shirts. So (laughs) that was like completely obvious that when they actually see enough climate change shit happening, like they say, yes, extreme weather is happening, storm surges are happening, Miami is getting inundated. When they see these low-level narrative events that they cannot actually resist, the way they change their tune is simply recode climate change narratives in conservative ways. And then it becomes avocado politics, which is increase barriers to immigration, turn away refugees, cut back on humanitarian aid, every country for themselves, every ethnicity for itself. So that's what you're going to see. You're seeing an accelerated version of that with the pandemic. I feel like we're ignoring one elephant in the room, which is just talking about coziness because we haven't, yeah, we haven't broke true. that. <laughs> what signaling your coziness is woke. And I wonder like, what does that change for your analysis of coziness as a generational? Oh, I've been analyzing it for a year and I think it's always been woke. So uh, coziness, as it started, was always a retreat from memetic toxiness of the public space, which I think people with sort of um, progressive slash liberal sensibilities were a lot more sensitive to. So they feel hurt, like take the concept of a microaggression, right? So if a professor says something really rude to a student, 
the student can't lash out very easily and that can turn into microaggressions. And if you experience a thousand microaggressions through years, it builds up. It's like a thousand paper cuts. It uh, affects your psyche, right? So that was one of the things that drove the domestic cozy trend early on. I think of it as ablating your armor. So everybody has a certain amount of social armor when they go out in discourses and a thousand tweets all sort of hammering away at the same minute points. At some point, you just get sick of it and say, I'm going to retreat. You do what I call Walden ponding. <laughs> so that was the genesis of domestic cozy. So a lot of people were fundamentally sensitive to uh, bad memetic weather and they retreated. A lot of them were progressive, sensitive, artistic types. They're the ones who I first saw retreating. Another bunch of people were people who wanted to have like principled intellectual debates or classical liberals. They were the ones to retreat next. So there were, there were patterns of retreat. Like one kind of person might retreat and go do knitting and baking. Another kind of person might say, these people are idiots. They don't know how to talk about politics. I'm going to retreat and only read paperback versions of Greek classics. So the fact that the current hardened cozy, as I've been calling it, version of uh, domestic cozy, which is retreating to domesticity, but with like, you know, pandemic hardened modes of hand washing and sanitizing. So yes, it's a lot dominated by woke and it's, there's all the usual stuff you can expect with it. They're virtue signaling about it. They're starting to shame each other for like not wearing masks or even going out, all that stuff. So there's that woke element to it. But there's also a fundamental sort of psychological selection as these people were already the ones who could not tolerate the harshness of the external environment and wouldn't retreat more already. I think even domestic cozy is going to see its own avocado politics kind of moment where once it's enforced on everybody as like a practical necessity and like, you know, conservatives and far right people start realizing that, shit, if I don't do this, if I don't retreat, then my conservative little town is going to be, you know, decimated by the pandemic. They will start doing it too, but then they will spin up a different narrative around it. And one thing I'm already seeing that's a worrying sign is here in LA, we've been in lockdown for like several weeks and crime has gone down. Traffic accidents have gone down. A lot of like good social indicators are trending in positive ways. But one indicator is going in worrying directions, which is domestic abuse. And the police department has been constantly putting out messaging that, hey, if you're in a domestic abuse situation, this lockdown does not mean you have to be in a toxic domestic environment. You can leave. It shouldn't have to be either or where you have to choose between getting infected with the virus or getting beaten up by an abusive partner, right? So that is like, to me, a very worrying canary in the coal mine of how would domestic cozy transmutate? Like right now, domestic cozy is a thing in somewhat liberal and socialist leaning large urban dense populations. What happens when the domestic cozy trend hits much more conservative areas? What happens when, you know, women and men and children are cooped up in extremely traditional family arrangements for long periods without being able to go out at all? What happens? especially when it hits the developing world where a lot of society is still organized along extremely traditional lines. What happens if a woman in an abusive relationship is unable to leave because a draconian authoritarian third world country leader has imposed like a particularly bad version of stay at home where this woman simply can't leave? That's going to take us into a very different regime of domestic cozy. And at that point, it won't be woke domestic cozy. It'll be reactionary medieval traditionalism, like, you know, Islamic burqa version of um, domestic cozy, which will have its uh, costs. Dark cozy. Dark cozy. Dark, dark, dark cozy. Point view, from their point of view, it will be golden cozy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Venkat, has a theory or model of yours ever turned out incredibly wrong? Incredibly wrong. <sighs> It <laughs> no. doesn't apply to me because I don't put out theories that I expect to stand the test of time. So I'm mm. a very sort of temporal guy in that sense. So I put out theories with expiry dates. So <laughs> in the sense of wrong as in uh, when I'm wrong, it's usually in getting the expiry date wrong or the magnitude of something wrong, not like, you know, absolute zero one wrong. So two examples of that that come to mind. Um, when I wrote the original Breaking Smart essays uh, with A16Z sponsorship, the last couple of essays, you'll find that I actually called this sort of ethno-national trend in a certain sense, like a, what happened after 2016, what I call the great weirding. Many of it, I warned against it in my 2014, 2015 essays, and I laid out a couple of different paths that could happen. I was hoping we would choose the right path rather than the path I hoped we wouldn't go down. So I was wrong about that. We went down the path I hoped we wouldn't go down. So that was one way I was wrong. The other way I was wrong was 
I didn't think we would come to that fork in the road that quickly. So when I wrote those essays in 2014, 2015, I basically called it as we will be forced at some point in the future to choose between the sort of Trumpist path and sort of stick to like, you know, liberal values and stuff path. And we should choose the liberal values path and stick to it. And that was my recommendation. And I thought that would happen around 2025. It ended up happening in 2016 and (laughs) chose the path that I thought we wouldn't go down. Right. (laughs) So in that sense, I was wrong. Uh, another example, I have been tracking the neo-reactionary stuff for a long time, like Moldbug and Nick Land. It popped on my radar maybe in 2009, 2010, uh, when he first started writing. I, think, I didn't take it seriously till about 2011, 2012. Then I started meeting a lot of these people. NRX is interesting. Unlike the sort of metastasized alt-right movement that came out of it that had all the ugly uh, neo-Nazi fascist overtones to it, the original NRX that uh, Moldbug and his uh, crowd pushed, there were ways to buy into it that were actually very attractive to people who thought of themselves as compassionate, kind, loving, wanting sort of good things for everybody kind of people. And I'm friends with a lot of these people. That's why I tend to pull my punches when I talk about this stuff a little bit, because there was a lot of people around that core who were attracted to the right bits of it for the right reasons, right? But I didn't take it seriously as in, the problematic elements of it, to me, were enough deal killers that I thought this would never be more than a marginal subculture. So, And I actually made a long bet about this with one of my friends who took it much more seriously. He thought it would explode in the zeitgeist and inform and shape mainstream politics within the decade. I predicted that it would remain a marginal sort of random subculture of reactionaries and never actually impact mainstream politics. I was wrong. So yeah, that's that's how I usually tend to be wrong. So speaking of uh, scale and timing, uh, when you started in 2007, Ribbon Farm, uh, the media landscape looked a lot different. But, you know, with 2016, 17, the way that ClearNet platforms placed things like CNN, New York Times, FT, next to Breitbart, RT, Infowars, we had a collapse of veracity and no one really believed those sites. And they started believing more blog spots and personal newsletters by experts that they trusted. As that happened, have you started approaching your work any differently? And how has that shifted your form of address or your feeling of responsibility? So yeah, it totally has. And this is something that's been a very continuous evolution for me. So this is one of the things where I do get the scale and timing right. So yeah, I saw this coming. I started writing it at the right time. So uh, over the last few years, the way the shift has manifested for me is I started newsletters for one. So I have two newsletters now and I'm both are subscription newsletters. So I'm actually making a decent amount of money from both of them, which is kind of helpful in these times. Um, and I started moving a lot more of my activity to back channels at the same time everybody else did, but I did that in a more deliberate way. Like we've had around Ribbon Farm, we run a conference called Refactor Camp that's been going for like eight years. It's probably done now, but uh, we started secret <laughs> Facebook groups around that in 2012, 13. So there's a bunch of those. I have a Slack, there's a bunch of like Telegram and other things. So uh, I'm aware of like maybe half of what I call the cozy web, the invisible lower infrastructure of community and communication and discourse. So the cozy web, the the cozy web around ribbon farm and everything I do, I would say it's about 50% visible to me. The other 50% is invisible even to me. And I'm sure of that invisible 50%, half of it is uh, uh, people who hate me. I've seen a couple of those. Like there's, um, there's this funny site called, uh, I forget what it's called. It's a Reddit where, um, Oh, Sneer Club. So Sneer Club is a subreddit devoted to like sneering at people people don't like. So I've been on there a couple of times, people hating on me. So I've been on there a couple of times, people hating on me. Congratulations. So that's because you have all of this coming. And uh, I've been placing my bets accordingly. And on Ribbon Farm proper, in 2007, when I started, the thing to do was to go viral. And that's how it got on the map. In 2009, I went viral. My post went on Slashdot. Huge spike of traffic, crashed my server. So that was the way you did blogging back then. The thing to do was to go viral, learn the art and formula of going viral. And then, of course, there was a question of, would you become slave to the formula and start putting out clickbait? Or would you still retain a certain sense of artistic vision and play to viral dynamics while actually saying things you wanted to say and having fun creating? So I think I managed to thread that needle quite well for several years between around 2009 to 2014, 2015. And around then, I started getting sick of it. Like, I did not like the effects of going viral. Like, most of the attention was bad attention, low quality (laughs) attention. 
And at that point, I started sort of steering my writing. Uh, I've still done like a few articles since then that's consciously in the go viral, go big formula. Most recently, a few months ago, I wrote this article called Internet of Beefs. And I actually sat on that for a year because I wrote the first draft a year ago and first draft told me, yeah, this is going to be a, a viral kind of hit. And do I even want this anymore? Because it was a particularly flame war mm, sort of attracting kind of piece. But that's the way I think now. Like when I come up with a concept that's very naturally a viral lightning rod kind of article, I tend to sit on it and decide, do I want to pick this battle? And most of my writing has shifted to this other mode. It's not that it's private. It's still in the public view, but I very consciously try to make it almost antiviral. So almost design it with an eye to this is going to consciously reverse engineer and remove the elements that make it clickbaity and blow up. So that was the reason I came up with this format I've been calling blockchains, which is a long series of short bite-sized posts. So the thing about going viral is it's a little bit like creating a nuclear bomb. You need a critical mass. So that's why long form is really good for going viral. If you write 4,000 words, that's a critical mass to like explode in a viral way. If you break it down into 10, 400 word chunks, that is a much lower chance of going viral. So doing it in this sort of drip trickle out form, that was one of my antiviral mechanisms. Another <laughs> that I started doing was I started deliberately picking headlines and titles that were like the opposite of like clickbaity, like, you know, click rejecty. Like I've pushed that to the extreme now of the most recent blockchain I started this year, it simply has a code number to it. So I use the Julian date, which is a calendar I like. So the individual installments of the blockchain are uh, labeled something like MJD588867, something like that. That's the modified <laughs> Julian date. It's so nerdy. It nothing about what's inside. It does not attract you to click. The only reason you would read that is if you're already a reader of me and you kind of trust that I might have something interesting to say. So that's like my strongest antiviral way of writing. And I'm pushing that as much as I can. It's such a flex. It's like when you get to the point where you don't have to rely on clickbait, I mean, that's like a Chad move, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so it's, it's a little bit of a um, weird flex. I, I do have the privilege of having been in the game long enough and getting in at the right time. So a lot of whatever success I've enjoyed is starting blogging at the right time. Like if I'd started Ribbon Farm in like 2014 rather than 2007, I would not have gotten where I did. But uh, even people who are much younger than me and starting now, I can see them picking up on the sensibility. Like I've actually invited young, promising writers to come on board and do a piece for Ribbon Farm. And it's too much attention for them. They're like, no, I want to build my own somewhat cozy site that's only right. for me and my subcultural friends. I do not want the sort of a big spotlight of attention that doing a ribbon farm feature article would do. And I respect that. And these are people who are like even rejecting WordPress and like standard, well-known large scale production ways of creating viral content. And they're doing these like really cute bespoke uh, HTML coded, hand coded sites. And I love this stuff because they're doing very creative experiments with it. Uh, it is a new media landscape where your success does not depend on how much you can create a lightning rod effect and this huge flood of discourse. That's still important to do on like a selective basis. Like if you think a concept deserves the treatment, by all means, go for it. But most influence, most ways of like shaping the discourse and conversation, they're now going to rely on much more uh, drip and trickle and slow influence and like keep it quiet, keep it under wraps, make it like percolate at a very slow rate through the cozy web. That's the way you want to actually influence culture now. It's going to be the powerful way. And I'm 45. I've learned an old game. I'm good at that game. I'm learning this new game. I'm not as good at it. And I'm sure like people 10 years younger than me are going to be much better at it. And I kind of wish them all the luck in sort of creating a new media landscape. It's going to be good. <laughs> It is interesting, a kind of Anthropocene, like a kind of conservationist or that's wrong, but like a kind of, maybe it's just the cozy analogy. The, yeah, like you said, a cozy web is a way of thinking about a more ecological form of media and, and producing media. Oh, totally. That's actually a really good metaphor. I love that. So what you're pointing out is this cozy web, slow and sustainable kind of way of doing media. It's the media equivalent of permaculture, which is yeah. one oh, of yeah, these of adaptations yeah. to yeah. You know, sustainable Anthropocene living. It's, it's got its problems. I don't think permaculture in the way it's talked about today is actually a way to run a 7.5 billion strong planet, but it's got some very important philosophical ideas in there. And I think permaculture is a very good way to think of media. So yeah, that's a good idea. 
Totally. This is from Culture on our Discord. Um, Future nauseous and the manufactured normalcy field are two of my favorite terms, though they're from 2012. They relate to log level as they describe a subjective experience of change slash becoming at the societal scale. Uh, Venkat had a critique of artistic futurism as a futile, futile practice. Invocations of the future are commodities for a certain class of trendy elites. They rarely have the power to anticipate the uncanny banality of the lived future present. Coincidentally, it is a Machiavellian practice of market futurism, which gives people the power to anticipate or exploit latent capacities for change in society. Think Steve Jobs unveiling the first iPhone. Its design is both obvious and impossible. To Venkatesh, a new design, whether technological or social, needs to be flattened into a pre-existing semiotic schema, lest we fail to apprehend its aspects and eventually reject it. But uh, this leads up to the question, in the past 10 years, have young people acquired a better handle on forecasting the future? Okay, so let me respond to that context thing because I think um, that person is making a very interesting point and my own views have evolved a little bit on those themes. So the article that person is talking about is uh, Welcome to the Future Nauseous. And this was this concept called Manufactured Normalcy Field, which went viral. This was in my viral phase. And that concept there was the idea that people come up with these very particular functionally fixed visions of the way the future ought to be. And then they get kind of disappointed when it actually goes mainstream in a much more banal way that sort of gets rid of all the ideologically radical bits, but then takes sort of the base object level stuff and sort of makes it banal and fits it into the existing scheme. So that's this manufactured normalcy field idea. And uh, this is why, for example, um, tech futurists who wanted flying cars, they were always disappointed that we never actually got flying cars. But the way it got normalized was the economics of like advancing aerospace engineering and cars and stuff. It gave us Southwest Airlines. It gave us like commuter cities. And now it's giving us drones that deliver packages. We never actually went to flying cars. That's an example of manufactured normalcy, right? Advancing aerospace technology, giving us some sort of product of these technological capabilities and visions, but not one that the artists and designers actually hoped for. That was the original manufactured normalcy. And what happens in radical times? Does that change? We used to inhabit really large manufactured normalcy fields. So manufactured normalcy fields that were as large as countries. There was an American way of life. There was a German way of life, right? So these were country-sized things. And that started atomizing and fragmenting. And today you still have manufactured normalcy fields, but they're smaller and smaller. And now they're at like the subcultural pocket level. There could be a manufactured normalcy field that's only about a couple of hundred people large. And the interesting thing that happens as a result of this for you know, artists and futurists is their position is actually strengthened because now they actually, if you think about it as if you're an artist or futurist and you are creating visions of the future that you're then selling to the mainstream, the fact that the mainstream has now fragmented from the single monopoly buyer to a thousand subcultures means that even if you never become sort of mainstream in the sense of everybody having a flying car, there's a chance that you're radical vision could go micro mainstream in a subculture where it's sustainably a thing and it actually weakens more of its sort of radical character. So I, I think that's kind of how this stuff has evolved. And also I think my views on like substance of um, the art and design world has evolved a bit because since 2012, I've been invited to a bunch of like um, museum crowd things. I did a talk at the Guggenheim. I did something at the Serpentine Gallery last year. I've made a lot of friends in the art world and I've kind of developed a better appreciation of how they operate, why they do what they do. And I think they're more aware of this dynamic than I thought. So I've changed my mind a little bit about that stuff. So example of that, that's really fresh in my mind. So I've been reading this wonderful book called um, The Starship and the Canoe. And I've been tweeting about it. So it's a book about Freeman Dyson and his son, George Dyson. Freeman Dyson was a physicist who came up with nuclear powered rockets. That vision never came about. And George Dyson is his son who's kind of like, a really weird character and sort of out, I met him once at a conference. Uh, he's 
he's a historian. He's written books about computer technology history, but he's best known for being a weird British Columbia outdoorsman who revived the practice of building Aleut canoes. So the Aleuts, who are a tribe in the Pacific Northwest, they have this really evolved, advanced way of building kayaks. And uh, George Dyson sort of resurrected that art and created modern fiberglass versions. And he created this wonderful series of canoes that if you'd asked me in 2012, I would have labeled them sort of uh, design fiction that's kind of outside manufactured normalcy and is kind of irrelevant to real life. Yeah, it's great that this really smart guy has uh, reverse engineered Aleut canoes and is rebuilding them now. And it's sort of a minor marginal thing. So I would have been much more dismissive of its cultural significance in 2012. Now I look at that canoe and say, hey, yes, in a large mainstream manufactured normalcy sense, that canoe is a meaningless artifact that's always going to be a disappointment to people who believe in it. But now it feels like, no, that canoe could actually be the root of like, you know, a revivalist canoe subculture that has its own discords and slacks and Twitters and blogs. And you might have this thriving subcommunity around the world that's internet connected, that's building canoes uh, all over the world. And it can be a thriving little uh, manufactured normalcy feel of its own. That's several thousand people big distributed across the world uses the most modern technology to interconnect and becomes a sustainable part of reality. And I think that sort of thing is going to become increasingly true. Yeah. And I think the other part of that question was just like, do you feel that young people today are increasingly good at, I mean, I guess every young people are always good at seeing no, the future better not. than the ones so, before. Uh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm going to yeah. respond to that as well. Are they better at the future? No, they're not. Right. They're as bad or as good as humans right. always have right. been right. in history. Here's right. what they're better at. So you've heard Alan Kay's famous line, it's easier to invent the future than uh, predict it, right? right? Now, look at what how that has changed in this modern environment. In 1950, Freeman Dyson's time, predicting the future meant predicting the future of all of humanity at once. And his response to that, a brilliant physicist, was to come up with nuclear-powered rockets and all of humanity is going to go on these starship voyages to Alpha Centauri. And he actually came up with like technologically plausible visions of that stuff. That's what predicting and inventing the future meant in 1950. You had to predict and invent it at you know billions of people kind of scale. What's changed now is you can actually invent the future at much smaller scale. You can invent the future for a thousand people and sort of bring it about in a way where the thousand person future could actually hope to last a thousand years. Permaculture. You can create microcosm sized permacultures. So they're no better at predicting the future, but the act of inventing the future has been democratized. So in that sense, they can sort of get together in sort of a Discord or Slack or whatever it, they want to use and invent a future that will be true for them, their little group, and maybe last a thousand years. Who knows? Totally. That's such a good insight. Um, all right. I've got one last question, which is just, what's your stack? <laughs> You're like, no tropic stack or whatever. <laughs> You mean the set of tools I used to work? Like, what's your what's your sort of personal performance, performance enhancement? Because you're a very prolific writer. Very oh God, successful. I hate that. I totally hate that um, culture of sort of life optimizing and designing. I just have a set of defaults I inherited from whatever I grew up with, and I just stick with them. I drink coffee. I sleep. Okay. I wake up at normal times. I. Uh, cook the food I learned how to cook. Occasionally, I learn a new recipe or two. I'm, I grew up vegetarian, <laughs> so I'm still vegetarian. I don't agonize about optimizing my diet. Uh, my wife, uh, Miyang, she's a lot more into that kind of stuff. So because she arranges a lot more of my life than uh, I would like, I think I end up more optimized than I would optimize my own life. <laughs> so uh, I used to take just a multivitamin. But because she's a lot more into this, uh, my pill box now contains like four or five supplements. I don't know what half of them do, but she picked them. So I, picked them. <laughs> uh, I think there's vitamin D. That's like you yeah. and me. I know, like car, I have the Carly stack. He has to like slip like drops of stuff into my water. Oh, what? I feel like I, it's like a, yeah. a placebo yeah, by proxy where the spouse just kind of drugs the other one and hopes that they're optimizing him in a way. <laughs> oh, gives me a lot of supplements. Like I just learned that she just told me this morning that uh, sometimes when she makes a protein shake for me, she sneaks in a little vitamin C. And I'm like, I had no idea you were giving me vitamin C. <laughs> My stack, I would say, is uh, the Mee Young stack unconsciously executed. 
Right. Excellent. Um, and is there anything that we should look forward to? I heard that maybe you're working on another book, or is there anything on the horizon that um, yeah. you'd like to? Uh, yeah. So the two newsletters I have, Art of Gig is just a regular sort of newsletter for consultants. But the other one, Breaking Smart, it came out of the essay collection I wrote in 2015 with A16Z, and I just turned it into a subscription newsletter partly to help fund my more ambitious writing projects. So one of them is a book. So this last year at Berggruen, I've been researching time and temporality, kind of like done with the research phase and I'm ready to start writing. So that's one of the projects that's under the Breaking Smart umbrella now. So subscribers are basically helping sustain that. So that's going to be a book about how we construct time and things like log level and manufactured normalcy. They're all sort of feeding into that thesis. So hopefully that'll be a book that I serialize on Breaking Smart. So I'm going to write one chapter at a time and put it out in the mailing list. And the other project is what was supposed to be Breaking Smart season two, which I promised in 2017 and then kept getting delayed. I'm finally going to start writing it. And that is a collection of essays I've titled The Great Weirding, which is basically look at this transformation we've been through in the last five years. What is the before? What's the after? What are the outlines of the world we are in right now? So that's going to be a collection of maybe six to seven essays. So both of those are going to be out on Breaking Smart. Breaking Smart that Substack, I believe, right? Yep. We'll link to everything on. Who's the cutting your hair? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. How are you keeping it short? Yeah, in who's quarantine? cutting your hair in quarantine? <laughs> oh, my hair. Yeah. Uh, I I think um, this is one of my predictive successes. I saw this coming soon enough that I got a haircut just before it hit. Oh, uh, good. <laughs> very good. I did the same, but it's it's getting a yeah, little bit. Yeah, I have like a, I'm wearing a hat because I have like a bowl cut now. It's <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> if this lasts another month or two, yeah, my hair is going to look terrible. <laughs> I'm good for now. Cool. All right. Well, Venkat, thank you so much for spending yeah, your you. morning with us. Thank you. We, we really appreciate this. Thank you for listening to New Models Podcast, and thank you, Venkatesh Rao, for coming on the show. Venkat publishes multiple newsletters and podcasts, including his technology analysis channel, breakingsmart.substack.com, his channel for independent workers, artofgig.substack.com, and of course, ribbonfarm.com. You can follow Venkat on Twitter at VGR. For all New Models content, including our patrons-only Topsoil podcasts and access to our thriving Discord, join on our Patreon at patreon.com slash new models. Thank you and see you next episode.